This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey y'all, Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. If you're like me, you have probably gotten to the point in this whole social distancing, quarantine, stay-at-home moment where you feel like you're maybe out of things to watch and read. Well, if that's you, we are here to help. We're going to go back into the archives this week to recommend some stuff for you to enjoy with all this time you've got on your hands. First up, a book written by an author whose candor is so, so refreshing, especially now. Well, uh, I've already told your team this, but know that I'm incredibly hungover. Uh, (laughs) That is Saeed Jones. We spoke last year, and I felt like I knew Saeed way before we talked. Because his Twitter feed is this poignant and hilarious digital personal diary. Makes you feel like you're living his life with him. When we talked last year, Saeed had just put out his memoir. It's called How We Fight for Our Lives. And it's truly unlike any memoir I have read in a while. It reads like poetry and it feels like a novel. This book is all about Saeed's unique life story, growing up black and gay and Buddhist in small town Texas, and finding a way, over time, to love himself and be himself without shame. The themes in here are universal, grappling with desire, forging a life for yourself while still finding room in that life for the folks who raised you, realizing your place in the world. Saeed and I talk frankly about all of that, and we also graphically discuss sex, sexuality, and abuse. So parents, this may not be the best conversation for kids. There's also some sensitive and derogatory language in this episode involving a slur that we kept unbleeped. All right, let's get to it. Saeed joined me last year for this conversation. We began by talking about a big move he had just made from New York City to Columbus, Ohio. All right, enjoy. This has been one of the big topics of your Twitter feed in the last few months. You were a longtime New Yorker, and a few months ago you said, "Uh uh-uh, screw this, I'm going to Ohio, and you moved to Columbus, Ohio. What, how many months ago? I moved uh, just less than a month ago. I moved in, I think, September 1st. Oh, my goodness. What made you Mm -hmm. do that? Um, You know, I mean, as you said, I've been living in New York basically on and off for about a decade now, and uh, much of that time has been, you know, working in media and news, and... I just feel that the tenor of American life right now is so high pitched mm. and just really intense, especially, you know, and that's true for everyone. Yeah. But even more so, of course, if your your job is to write or think about culture and like to really pay attention to it. And yeah. I just, so I, I needed a way to find a space where I could be a little more sustainable. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very, like you said, um, open person. I, talk constantly about what I'm going through either on Twitter and in my writing. I have no problem sharing that part of my um, experience with people. But I think privately, (laughs) on the personal level, you know, I I realized that I needed to do a better job of taking care of myself, Mm. you know, and, and living in New York just felt like, it's just it's expensive and just so intense and loud you know and literally (laughs) since i've moved here i've been in columbus for just under a month now and i'm writing more and reading more than i have in years you know like there's been an immediate change in my quality of life one of my favorite stories you've shared on twitter about your move uh was ending up very soon after you got to columbus ohio ending up at an ohio state 
tailgate party. Yes, I lo- I'm wearing an OSU shirt. Right Look, now. you have you have gone full. <laughs> you have gone full native out there. I love it. So, in a nutshell, sum up that day for our listeners. Um, well, first of all, tailgate. I mean, you know, I grew up. I grew up in Texas. I grew up um, in the suburbs of North Dallas. So, you know, I grew up with a relationship to football because football is just. It is the organizing principle in Texas. Oh, yeah. That and church. <laughs> um, That's so, it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Football and church. So, you know, I think some people might be thrown that I know as much as I, I'm like, oh, I did. I just like, you know, but I, I came out of the closet and was like, oh, good. I, I don't have to pretend to care about football anymore. Is always <laughs> how, how I felt. Um, so I, I what what's funny then to now go tailgating here in Ohio is I feel like it's I've worked through my anxiety of it, about mm-hmm. the experience. Like it's not fraught mm-hmm. as a space and it's just really fun. And I, I hate that here. It's very early in the morning. I mean, it's like <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, in <laughs> your like tweets drinking. about that tailgate, you, you tweeted it at, oh, my at one gosh. point. It is it was... 8.54 a.m. and I'm drinking a vodka mm-hmm. Red Bull. Right. And that was already, I think that was an hour into the experience. I mean, it's just so surreal. And you're just, it's just a sea of people wearing red shirts. My friend gave me um, an OSU shirt because he was like, oh, you absolutely cannot just be walking in there oh, without yeah. oh, Scarlet yeah. and Gray. Don't play girl. <laughs> I love, so I wanted to start with the tailgate party story mm-hmm. because for me, in so many ways, it sums up Saeed, this ability to take <laughs> a small thing and draw some big ideas out of it. And it also sums up the way I feel the book deals with how you move through the world. Like, what does it mean to be Saeed and live and thrive in spaces like an Ohio State tailgate party where there are very few people who look like you, very few folks who share the same background as you? What does it mean to move through spaces not made for you and not intended for you? And that is one of the big themes I found in your book. Thank you. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, that was that's certainly the goal <laughs> of the memoir. You know, I I think, you know, oppression is uh, wears us out in all kinds of ways. Mm. But something lately that I've been thinking about is just like how exhausting it is to struggle not to express yourself. Like I don't believe anyone is voiceless. I mean, people are like I want to be a voice for the voiceless. I'm like, no one's voiceless. Yeah, they got a um, voice. But yeah. I think. They got a voice, but the struggle to get people to listen to you, you know, like Mm. you're talking and you're talking, but it can often feel like, you know, you're just talking in the void. And I know queer people, trans people, um, immigrants, you know, are like always trying to communicate to this country. Like, this is what's going on. You know, this is what it is to be me and to feel unwelcome in this place that's supposed to be welcoming. And so I think the tension in knowing how you feel about your existence and not feeling heard um is is intense and it's Mm. exhausting so um with the memoir you know one of my goals was to allow readers to be kind of in my body to kind of be with me you know uh in my internal kind of conversation and to to see what the cost of that dynamic is over time you know um something i i tell people often i'm like listen this isn't a book where you know i know i'm growing up as a gay kid in the suburbs of north texas this isn't a book about me being like shelved in the locker room you know and and being bullied and stuff i'm bullying myself Mm. um because i think one of the things that can begin to take hold of us um when we are made to feel unwelcome is that we begin to kind of self-narrate that harassment you know Uh, um and we do it to ourselves kind of we do it to ourselves we say the mean thing first before anyone else can say it. Yeah. And I think I did that a lot when I was young and thought in part because I think I thought I could um, prepare myself, inoculate myself. Yeah. Um, 
But instead of inoculating, I think it, I was just being cruel to myself. That's all that was happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you think about that and getting over that, mm-hmm. the Saeed that went to that Ohio State tailgate a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. how did he handle that kind of environment better or more deliberately than the Saeed who was still being cruel to himself at the open of this book might have? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know. I enjoyed myself. I, I, I think <laughs> that is a good thing. You know, I mean, that's a good thing. I had fun. I mean, you know, and and I've got to say, like, this is ongoing, and you know, there are ups and downs. You know, um, I'm not going to pretend like I wrote the book and everything's just better now, mm. perfect. You know, but I mean, as recently as even you know um, a year ago, there are still moments when, like I mentioned, like going to a sports bar. If I go into a space, you know. Um, and if the atmosphere is aggressive and kind of scary, like I've had panic attacks. Wow. I've had to leave wow. uh, bars or nightclubs because I can't, you know, I, I remember uh, doing, I was uh, doing a reporting trip in New Orleans in 2013, I think. Um, and I ended up going to a bar that was, you know, I think there was a lot of queer, there were a lot of queer people there, but it was very much like, as true of all of New Orleans, very much a mixed, fluid, kind yeah. of cultural Creole space, yeah. you know. And I remember having to leave that night because every time it was very crowded and every time someone bumped into me or I bumped into them, I would have just a moment of panic because uh. I was like, am I going to get in a fight? Am I, am, whatever, you know. And so um, my friend, you know, and I explained, I was like, I have to leave. I'm so sorry. Really? I was like, uh, okay. And we're like walking back to our hotel. Um, and, the, you know, now it's like two o'clock in the morning in New Orleans, um, walking back to the quarter. And, you know, and I'm explaining to him, I was like, well, you know, I hooked up with this straight guy once and he tried to kill me. And now when I'm fighting, like, it's a whole thing. That, like, we're having this, like, soul, but, you know, we're crying as we're walking. Yeah. And I will never forget a car pulling up beside us and it had tinted windows and one of the windows rolled down. And someone yelled, you faggot. Oi. Oi. <laughs> at us. And my friend just turned and said, you're not helping. <laughs> Uh, it was the most surreal like oh my god is this a metaphor what's happening oh my god but all that's to say like you know a a huge source of joy for me now is that i it's easier um for me to be myself wherever i am yeah and i think the thing about identity is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy um if, if we are in a space and we feel unsafe and we're worried about being unsafe that space becomes unsafe. There you go. Right? Like, it's, it's such a, it's a weird dynamic. But on the other hand, you know, if I'm like, I'm here, I deserve to be here. Yes. This room is better because I'm in the yes. room. It's a better room, you know? Um, so <laughs> you that's definitely something that I figured out. Make yeah. the room better. Make yeah. the room better. I love it. So this book, you know, usually I'll have writers come on and give me like a 30 second elevator pitch for the book before we really dig into it <laughs> what i would rather you do because we know now this mm-hmm. is a memoir about you growing up black queer and amazing in texas etc i think the best elevator pitch for this book is the poem that occurs at the beginning of it i'm talking about elegy with grown folks music could you read that absolutely i love it okay elegy with grown folks music. I want to be your lover comes on the kitchen radio. And briefly, your mother isn't your mother. Just like if the falsetto is just right, a black man in black lace panties isn't a faggot, but a prince, a prodigy. And the woman with your hometown between her hips shimmies past the eviction notice burning on the counter 
and her body moves like she never even birthed you. The voice on the radio pleads, I want to be the only one that makes you come running. Some songs take women places men cannot follow. Spinning, she looks at but doesn't see you. Spinning, she sings lyrics too fast for you to pursue. Spinning, she doesn't have time for questions like, what is this nasty song? And where did she learn to dance like that? And why? And who is this high-pitched of a man who can sing like a woman and turn your mother not into your mother but a woman? Not even a woman, but a box-braided black girl, a fast girl, a chick, a vanity six, and how far away she is from you right here in the same living room, dancing with the song's hook in her throat. And you hate the voice coming through the radio because another sissy has snatched your dreams and run off with them, and because you are young and don't know the difference between abandoned and alone, just like your mother's heart won't know the difference between beat and attack. She will be dead in a decade, and maybe you already know what you are losing without knowing how. But you're just a boy for now, and your mother is just a woman, just a girl, body swaying, fingers snapping, and snakes in her blood. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I love it. It gives me chills. When you say, turn your mother, not into your mother, but a woman, not even a woman, but a box-braided black girl. I love that setup because in reality, what this book felt like for me was not just a memoir of Saeed, but a memoir mm. of your mother too. Right. This is... Yeah. Ins- it is. Yeah. yeah. And that is, that is something. You know, you have written this book that is a love letter to her, an explanation of her and y'all's relationship, but she's no longer here. Mm-hmm. How hard and long did you fret about what she might make of this portrayal? Um, you know, my mom was always very intuitive, I think, about her understanding of my direction in life. Mm. Like, I remember, like, I remember we were at a Blockbuster, and I don't know how this came up, but I remember us being in a Blockbuster when I was in middle school. Uh-huh. Um, and she, we were just talking at the counter, and she said something. So, like, when you're doing debate in high school, da 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 and she just went on. And I was like, what do you, how do you? How do you know I'm going to do debate? And she just looked at me like, of course you're going to do debate. You know, and, and it was true. It wasn't like she wasn't she wasn't imposing. I was just like, have you been eavesdropping on my brain? Like, what just happened? You know, my mom was always like that. Yeah. And when it came to things that um, I think she realized I was passionate about. So, you know, she knew. I remember being in graduate school and she called me one day and was like, yeah, I told your grandmother uh, that you're planning on writing a memoir one day. And I was like, oh, how did that go? Um, <laughs> I was like, what did she say? And she was like, she just said, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, one, obviously what happens in the book, that's pretty hilarious. Yeah. But also, you know, it just, it, I, I think it, and, and I was in graduate school at that point. So, you know, I think there was just like an ongoing conversation. So I say all that to say, I wasn't, I wasn't anxious about writing about my mom. You know, she is, um, she is clearly a, a vital part of the story of my life. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, you know, it would be like me, like, am I going to feel anxious about writing about being gay? Well, no, I can't tell my story without, without telling that weirdness in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's how I feel about her. Um, I tried to be as thoughtful as possible in 
positioning how I explained the book. I remember when I sold the book and, you know, meeting with publishers and the publishing industry is, I don't know, I think statistically it's something like 90% white or something. Wow. Um, and I, I remember that I, I, I had this, um, this awareness whenever I would say I grew up in Texas and my mom was a single parent, I was really aware of how I felt the other person was perceiving me. In that really? Moment, what do you mean? You know, well, because I feel like there were so many ready-made stereotypes for black single mothers, uh -huh. you know, or for my grandmother. You know, when I would say my grandmother is a very conservative, you know, Christian black woman who's lived in Memphis her whole life. Like, and I would like look for the thought bubble. Like, what are you, th you know? Um, yeah. And so it was really important for me to give them nuance. Mm. I, I need that nuance because I don't think it makes me a hero to make other people villains. Um, and it also goes against the intention of the book, which is to uh, examine how we are all fighting for our lives concurrently. Sometimes, unfortunately, when we are destructive, our fight you know, comes at a cost for other people, but we're all trying to figure this out. And that's why I love opening the book with the poem yeah. to make it clear that like, my mom is a human being. She is a person. Yes. Her name was Carol Sweet Jones. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Her um, existence um, is valid whether or not it's related to me. And, and obviously she was my mom and that's our relationship, but I just wanted it to be very clear to readers that she had a life of her own, that my grandmother has a life of her own, and and that they're not tools, they're not literary devices, they are people. Um, and, and I wanted to convey that respect to readers. Time for a break. In a minute, Saeed talks about discovering his sexuality and coming out, and how that all went over with his family. Heads up, listeners, this next section contains graphic discussion of sex. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Face masks have become the new normal as we continue to grapple with the ongoing pandemic. But when did we start wearing masks for our health and safety? This week on Throughline, the origins of the N95 mask and how it became the life-saving tool it is today. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. One of the big topics of the book is you figuring out your sexuality and then having to grapple with it. Um, it was it was it was a journey for you. It's an ongoing process. Um, and it, it is it is not it, everything about a homosexual sexual awakening is different and harder than a heterosexual sexual awakening. Mm -hmm. For instance, you write about the first vivid sex dream you have as a boy about mm -hmm. some other boy that you desire. But in this dream in which you desire this boy, he calls you faggot in the sex dream. Mm -hmm. And in the dream, mm -hmm. you like it? Or is that mm -hmm. even the right way to say it? But it, it, it was one of those things where it was like shame and desire were like mixing together, even in your subconscious, mm -hmm. even in your dreams. Right. Describe that yeah. dream for us if you can. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, my my early kind of sex dreams, it was based on a boy, Cody, who appears in the book that I had such a crush on. And he was like mean as He was, oh, I don't like, <laughs> I, I did not like Cody, so okay? Mean. Can I just say, <laughs> Cody was a is a trash man. Cody is trash, the original trash man. <laughs> Literally. <was> so terrible. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> But I had such a crush on him. Yeah. I just that's it how it goes. Stress me out. That's how yeah, it goes. I mean, and I described this in the book at one point that one day when we were talking in our, you know, the parking lot of our apartment complex, I remember him standing close to me and saying something and being distracted because I was worried I was going to kiss him on accident. <laughs> And, 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 and I remember that it feels like if you know people who are like afraid of bridges, mm-hmm. where it's just like, what, you think I'm going to jump off the bridge on accident? Like, what's going But when you feel something so intensely, yeah. you kind of like don't even you trust don't, yourself. Exactly. Uh, and, and that was, you know, he was, and sadly, I've felt this way many times about many trash men <laughs> since. Uh, <laughs> but he was, the, that was my first experience of that. Like, and it was just so overwhelming. And as you say, you know, of course, Everyone uh, has to come to terms with desire, right? Yeah. But queer people often, and I hope this is becoming less and less true, but queer people often have to come to terms with desire in secret, yes. in private, yes. without information. You know, it's yeah. not like I'm like, oh, I can go pick up my um, sex ed manual yeah. that they read us in school and turn to the section on, what does it mean to have feelings for boys? Like, no, we don't, yeah. we don't have that kind of public discourse for young people generally. So you're going through all of these feelings that are overwhelming for anyone, but especially if you're queer, you know? Um, and yeah, so in my dreams... I, it, it was like, I, I knew the desire, but I, I didn't, I, it was hard for me to even visualize. So often in my early uh, teens, when I would dream about a crush on a boy, I would dream that I was a girl mm. um, because I could, I literally couldn't even uh, form it. Like when people talk about representation yeah. <laughs> and stuff, I'm like, well, this is a perfect example. I was like, I couldn't even imagine what it would look like for two men to kiss. Yeah. You know, like I couldn't even construct that, yeah. you know, and, 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 and I should say, you know, this is. This happens to be around the time when Queer as Folk is about to premiere on Showtime and other, you know, Will and Grace, uh, you know, uh, premieres not too long after. But those weren't black boys from Louisville. Hello. They weren't, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and yeah. so, yeah. It, but but it, it, so it was really a journey into, like, how do you see yourself? And I think, you know, because our culture is... Um, dominated by and obsessed with straight rich cisgender people i think those people will never fully understand how much work literally everyone else does to imagine ourselves into existence you know just that the strain and the effort and and i've talked to so many people women you know just immigrants all over you know who are just like oh man yeah (laughs) it's exhausting yeah so this would not be a coming of age story about a young gay boy if there weren't uh an epic pray the gay away moment and (laughs) when i tell you i have never heard a pray the gay away story as rich as the one you lay out in this book um i don't want to give away too many spoilers for folks that haven't Mm -hmm. read it yet but how much can we talk about you and your grandmother (laughs) in that church house oh oh man what a moment (laughs) it lingered when i tell you it lingered on my really? person. I carried that story in my bones for a few days. Wow. 
Wow. Can we tell? I have to be honest. It, it's, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, it's one of the sections of the book that when I'm rereading the book, I usually skip over. Wow. I don't, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't, it, yeah, I don't. I, it's just like, well, I read it. I know. It's fine. And I'm just like, <laughs> let's just keep it going. Like, I, I literally will read about anything else. There's so many parts of the book uh. that are so incredibly vulnerable. Um, but that part of the book, it's deeply painful um, because, um, you know, my grandmother loves me. I believe my grandmother is a loving woman. Yeah. And she's very devoutly Christian. Yeah. And when I was a kid, um, you know, my mom practiced Nitram Buddhism, and that was a huge source of conflict in the book. I can only imagine. Um, And in my family, it was like, I I was like, I can't even go into that too much in the book because that's a whole other book. Yeah. I mean, it it caused a huge rift in our family. Um, And so by the time I was a preteen, you know, it was clear that the more conservative religious members of my family felt that the battle had moved to a new front. Uh. That, you know, it was like, we can't we can't keep arguing with Carol forever. She's made up her mind. It seems like she's really stuck to this. But now they're Saeed to think about. It was deeply, it's deeply painful to read about because it's an, a painful act of love. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think my, my grandmother, who basically, you know, as you will see in the book, basically... Um, asks a pastor, a visiting pastor at her church to pray um, over me. And and he prays basically a curse um, on my mother, right? That he basically hopes that my mother gets sick um, and and suffers. He's not just praying for you to become whatever your Mm -hmm. grandmother wants you to become. Mm -hmm. He's saying in order to make sure that Saeed gets Mm -hmm. fixed, Mm -hmm. I pray a curse on his mother until that happens. Right. Because she's Buddhist. Yeah. What a piece of work. It was... I swear. (laughs) <laughs> like what you know yeah because there's totally a scenario in which the, this man's just like oh jesus let saeed see the light let him you know believe all the good wonderful yeah. like no you this is your this this curse of damnation and suffering is the only way you can see someone coming to appreciate what you you know claim to be this divine love it's a mess i want to read the line that he says because it just they say fight back god make her suffer Put every ailment, every disease on her until she breaks under the weight of the Holy Spirit. Show her your plagues and save this child. Amen. Mm. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing about writing a memoir is dialogue comes up. Inevitably, people need to talk. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, obviously, I can't remember what I, my mom and I said to each other on the phone at different moments. But that scene, I remember every single word. Really? I will. It will. It. It. I. I will. I will be dead and gone, and still remember every single word that man said. Uh. Because it, you know, I remember like. You know, that feeling, particularly when you're a teenager, um, you can always tell when people are looking at you. Oh, yeah. So Especially insecure. at an altar call. Right? Everyone's like, looking at it, you. Exactly. I remember, like, walking across the high school cafeteria and walking to the front of the church always being huge sources of anxiety <laughs> yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, re- I remember what it felt like being dragged to the front of the church. I remember feeling everyone looking at me and, like, any, you know, teenager kind of being distracted by that. Like, you're embarrassing me. Like, let me go straight back to the shadows. Yeah. You know? That's really what I was thinking about. Yeah. Until he said the word her. For some reason, that pronoun uh. is what got my attention again. Uh. You know, because I was like, you know, I'm at this point, I'm like, Christians are crazy. Like, this has all been a pretty dramatic summer. <laughs> yeah. The bar is pretty low for my expectations yeah. for adults to not act crazy. Yeah. So I was already like, whatever's about to happen, I know it's going to be bad. Yeah. But when I heard him say the word her, 
like as you've noted, it that is that was such an unexpected. Oh my goodness! And cruel. Yeah. And awful. Th- I just couldn't. You know, it, it was one thing I think for my grandmother to take me to the front of the church and in front of two or three hundred strangers, uh, be like, "His mother is Buddhist. Help save him from damnation." Like that was one thing, but the cruelty yeah. to say, "Well, our solution is like to wish suffering on another person." That shocked me. Yeah. You know, and so when I say the chapter is painful, because there are different painful moments in the book it's painful because i feel so sad for my grandmother Mm. that this is this was how she was expressing her love for me have you forgiven your grandmother i have i have how long did it take oh it took a long time it did Mm. and because we couldn't talk about it because it wasn't something that like we could have a knockdown drag out argument about it became a silence And, and you see this the silence is to me personally one of the more significant themes throughout the book. You see kind of what happens when people stop talking about that obviously important thing. But what happens over time with these silences is at some point you begin to actually forget Mm. what you're angry about. Uh, So it got to the point where I just like, yeah, I just had this cold, toxic relationship with my grandmother and I couldn't even remember why most times. Mm. I just knew that I didn't like her very much, to be honest with you. I remember in the years before she died, my mom was going back to Memphis a lot to take care of my grandmother. Uh, She was thinking about actually moving from Atlanta where she lived back to Memphis. And I'd be like, are you crazy? Uh, But I wouldn't say why. I was just like, you crazy, you know? (laughs) Um, And she'd be like, oh, Saeed, stop it, you know? But I remember noticing, I was like, huh? Because she had had her own some of my earliest memories are my mother and my grandmother arguing, you know, like she'd had, she'd been through her own crucible with yeah, them yeah. over religion, yeah. you know, and yet towards the end of her life, like most of my memories of my mom are her loving her family, taking care of them. Oh yeah. So I remember, yeah, so I remember, you know, just before she passed away, kind of being like, I think I need to move on and I don't know how, but I need to move on. Um, and I'm not going to say I'm grateful for this experience, but my mom passing away pushed me yeah. to to put my sword down yeah. because it just felt bigger than all of us. It is it is the beauty of the book because like in many ways the story you tell is uniquely your own. But in so many ways the story you tell is one that all of us are going to have to deal with, you know, a parent dying, a sick family member, going away to college, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In writing the book, how much time did you spend thinking about the interplay between the specific and the universal? Mm. Um, I don't think I thought about it very much. Mm. You know, I, I really, it, it's interesting, you know, when I was selling the book and, and that's just, and I, and I point to it because it's such a bizarre experience when the book you're selling is a memoir because you, you find yourself in the position of sitting in conference rooms in Midtown New York, uh, talking to usually rooms yeah. of white people, um, explaining, like, uh-huh. and people say, like, who's the audience for this book? Which, in my mind, I'd be like, so who do you think would care about your life? Why, why, what kind of reader would care about yeah. your mother? You know, it's, a, it's just a weird yeah. thing where you're trying to uh, get someone to understand. You know, in my, I'm like, you should just care because you should care. But yeah, because I'm a good writer. A, Read this book. Exactly, yeah. So I remember that, having that dynamic and, and being like, well, everybody has a mom, as far as I know, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone, you know, and yeah. as I've as I went into the book, my um, kind of organizing logic was that, like, listen, um, the work of fighting for our lives, of, of, of developing our understanding of power and gender is intense work. 
and it could be dangerous. And so I was like, here's the thing. Here's my pitch. Like, if a man has not figured out his gender politics, and most men have not, let's be honest, he is like a Ford F-150 speeding down the highway, you know, swerving, you know, which is to say he is not just dangerous to himself. He's dangerous to every other person on the road. You know, so my memoir, like it is my coming of age story. It is about me and the the factual events that defined the, uh, you know, first early years of my life. But also it's a project that helps us understand we have to understand what's going on. Because when we don't, we are a danger to ourselves and everyone else. One more break right here. When we come back, Saeed tells me about a time he actually fought for his life. We talk about a violent sexual encounter he experienced that made him see things differently. Um, and he kept saying, I'm so evil, I'm so evil, I'm so evil, and you're already dead. And I'd be like, I'm not dead, and you're not evil. You need to stop before you do something. You know, like, yeah. I just felt deep compassion for him. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Sticks and stones might break your bones, but during this pandemic, hateful words could actually kill you. This is dangerous at a level which we haven't seen, I think, in in generations. This is painting a target on millions of Americans. Your questions about race and COVID, next time on Code Switch from NPR. Flash forward to college, you end up at Bowling Green, and you you are getting to have as much sex as you want. But you so end- much sex. Oh, my God. <laughs> but you end up having a lot of sex with, with a lot of men who are either mm-hmm. downright mean to you or are trying mm-hmm. to hurt you. Mm-hmm. There was the one guy who's into some weird race play who has, like, literally a jungle set up in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. there's the guy who kind of comes on to you, but after y'all are hooking up, he tries to beat you up. Yeah. How long did it take you and your therapist to unpack... <laughs> What you were doing there. (laughs) He is in the acknowledgments for this book. Good. Uh, How long did it take me to unpack? You know, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's ongoing. Okay. You know, I I think, you know. Stop letting them hit you, Saeed, if it's ongoing. Well, you know, now I hit back. This is terrible. (laughs) This is so dark. This is so dark. Um, I mean, you know, I think for me, my major life questions, I just have to write about. And I don't mean that in like writing is like some kind of emotionally cathartic. And once I was able to write about Cody or the botanist or whatever, you know, like the clouds cleared, it's just like, I need to be able to look at dynamics with a sense of distance. And I am such a cold, (laughs) distant writer. I am, I am just like in a lab coat writing. Um, And so that allows me, I think, to really think through because it's like, well, if I have to think about Saeed as a character Mm. and go, well, why would Saeed do that? How would Saeed respond to that? What would, you know, that allows me to begin to go, oh, okay, I'm I'm seeing something here. Uh Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it took a very long time. Shout out to therapy. (laughs) Shout out. Um, Shout out to (laughs) shout out to feminism. Yeah. Shout out to what I do think is it's still burgeoning, but a better cultural 
conversation uh, about race and sex. I mean, the fact that you and I can be having this conversation, mm. you know, yeah. it, it, it is a step forward. It is. Um, I'm not going to pretend like everything's great, but like th- th- this is helpful, yes. you know, and, and certainly if I think about a younger version of myself being able to listen to the two of us talk right now, like that's beautiful mm. and really powerful. Mm. My theory is that for better or worse, many of our early relationships are kind of like science experiments, oh. right? We're, we're using another person uh. to learn something about ourselves. Uh. Um, and, and, and that's not like great, but like, I don't know, how else are you going to do it? That's true. Right? Like the first time, you know, <laughs> like it's just, it is what it is. You, you can't do like a virtual reality model, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you, you know, you go out and you, you have these firsts. Um, and yeah, I mean, what you see in the book is me literally using these experiences to try to understand myself. Yeah. I think I was trying to see myself. Uh. And uh, the problem with that, of course, is the vision was distorted. You know, the vi- like well, the vision was based in all- shame. Yeah, it was um, it was based in shame. It was warped by shame oh. and insecurity oh. and racism and oh. homophobia and you know. And so you were drawing men that would fulfill that vision for you, I guess. In some hello, ways. because yeah. isn't that what what isn't that what everything was going on? You know, yeah. my my junior year of college was the year that there was the Supreme Court decision on Lawrence v. Texas, mm-hmm. which was the end of anti sodomy. Mm-hmm. So until I was a junior in high school, technically in the state of Texas gay men could have still been arrested for having sex. Wow. If that is the cultural context in which people are growing up, yeah. <laughs> is it that surprising that, you know, this is what manifests in, in people's lives? Exactly. No, that shame is just there. Yeah, yeah. There's this moment after the jock who starts sucker punching you mid-fellatio, mm-hmm. you... Mm-hmm diffuse the situation but before you know it you're writing about how you're working through in your own way forgiving him Mm -hmm. that really surprised me did your ability to show empathy and forgiveness towards him so quickly did it surprise you as well um I, I you know, I've never thought about that. That's such a really what a wonderful question. I just want to sit here and marvel at the question for a moment <laughs> uh, instead of answering it. Um, no, I, I don't think I thought about it. The thing about people being deeply cruel and terrible is that they're also being very true, uh. right? Like like the the moment when someone screams a slur or commits a terrible act of violence, like that's all awful. But also, it's the most purest form of expression. Uh. And, and so you're seeing something, you know, in that moment, even if, unfortunately, you're the person on the other side of that violence, like, yeah. ah, you know, yeah. and I just feel like I've had these moments when I've, I've seen, you know, violence. Um, and in that moment, I just feel like, oh, oh, my God, you know, like, you're trying to express yourself. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, uh. I'm so sorry that you feel this is necessary. Uh. Daniel, you, I, I swear, if, I, if, I, if you could have been in the room when Daniel and I are wrestling on that floor, if you had been in my head, you would have thought I was beating him up. Wow. He was terrified. Wow. He was so, so scared. Scared of his own desire. And, and for, for, scared for of man. his own desire. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just remember, you know, and, and I remember how absurd and silly that this tall, huge kind of football player build uh, dude would be afraid of me. I'm like, I, literally, I just want to have sex with you, sir. So I, I'm definitely not trying to hurt you. But also, it's so deeply funny to me that you would ever think I would want to hurt you. 
Mm-hmm. Like this, this weird projection. And uh-huh. so I feel like that's kind of what I see happening with cancel culture. Like you're gonna you're, cancel is out of and I'm like, no, you're just you're just worried that whatever shady dealings you are doing <laughs> gonna come to light <laughs> are eventually going to come to light and you will be held to account. Yeah. Um, so that's what it is. But that being said, yeah, I just you know, one I just don't think I'm above it. You know, mm. like I'm not above men like Daniel and Cody. Yes, they are trash, but I guess I'm trash too. We're just going to be in the dumpster together. <laughs> and it just doesn't seem logical for me um, to imagine a realistic scenario where I just pretend like these people don't exist anymore mm. just because I don't like. Like, it's just not possible. Yeah. Because as, I've, as you see in the book, the only thing worse than being in the fight is pretending that you're not. Wow. You know? And I, I, I think to be like, cancel, you don't exist, you're out of here. You know, da, da, da. It, like you said, that violence, that danger, self-destructive and outwardly destructive is not going to end in that moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, like the most dangerous thing I could have done after having that experience with Daniel is not write about it. Uh. You know, is pretend that it didn't happen. Yeah. As we see, these men are, are our brothers. They are our presidents. They are our bosses. They are our lovers. They are our children. Yeah. Like, we have to figure out how to communicate um, and, and get them to listen. I'm not going to act like like people aren't here out here doing the work, yeah. you know. But it, we this, this is a vital conversation because our lives are on the line. Last question for you. Mm-hmm. I have thought long and hard about the title of this book, How We Fight for Our Lives. <laughs> and I like it because it's a phrase that becomes what you need in the moment. Uh, mm. And there were some days I was reading the book where that title meant one thing to me and other days where it meant something else. Mm. I wonder, how does that change for you, this phrase, how we fight for our lives? And how are you fighting for your life today? Hmm. Wow. Um. You know... I it, I love that you said, like, you know, the title seems to change in meaning as you go, um, as you're reading the book. Yeah. That was absolutely part of the intention. Mm. You know, I knew when, when I sold the book, and, and, and I think this is actually like a beautiful part of the writing process and what can develop. When I sold the book, the, it was based on an essay that I wrote about Daniel and, and the incident at Phoenix. So the title was How Men Fight for Their Lives. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that title was based on the moment when I'm wrestling with him and I look at him and I realize, I say like, he was a man who believed he was fighting for his life, uh. you know? So it's already got this kind of like dialectic. Yeah. That's very complicated. Yeah. Um, but I sold the book, how men fight for our lives. That was going to, that, you know, the, the gender masculinity aspect of the book was really going to be the focus. But as we expand, and I remember feeling uncomfortable because I just like, I just never in my life want to write a book with the word man on the cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but I remember being like, oh, I don't know. Because even earlier on, I was like, well, but my mom was fighting for her. Like I knew that. I was just like, oh, I don't know. You know, but we, um, but when we expanded the book, it felt like a gesture towards opening up the idea that, this, you know, I, I don't want people to read my memoir or any of my writing, really, and think of it as a um, vacation from the reality of their own lives. Uh. I hope everything I write, when you experience it as a reader, it feels like it's in, in dialogue with your life, uh. you know? Um, so, yeah, I think how am I fighting for my life now? I think it is what it's what the book is. I've I had this experience I've now been able to crystallize it literally into an object that I can put in other people's hands and now use it as the beginning 
of a conversation. Yeah. The book is the beginning of a conversation that I, I want us all to have. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really grateful to, to be able to do so. I'm grateful for it, too. Say Jones, thank you for the fight. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks again to author Saeed Jones. His book, How We Fight for Our Lives, is out right now. This episode first aired last year, and it was produced by Anjali Sastry and edited by Alexander McCall. All right, listeners, that's a wrap. We're back on your feeds Friday. Till then, I'm Sam Sanders. Happy reading and watching and surviving. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from the run-through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.